join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Man, I grew up in Baker, Louisiana, man. Um, I was kind of in a house full of music from a young age. Mm -hmm. I listened to everything. Like, you know, these days people dub me kind of country rock, but to be honest, I kind of got my chops from listening to everything from jazz to blues. My dad was a guitar player. So basically, he had me listening to every music at a young age. And my mother, she was always kind of skeptical of me, you know, being a full-time musician. But, you know, listening to my dad, she was just, if he's got the talent, let him do it. But growing up, I lived a kind of kind of standard life, man. I, you know, basically a kid growing up in Baker, hanging out with people, listening to a lot of music, you know? Yeah. yeah. You're, you said your father was a full-time musician or a part-time? At one time, he was a full-time player, but he, he started having kids. So he kind of dropped music and ended up working in the plants and stuff like that. I got you. And um, at the point or at the point in time that you came along, had he transitioned to worker or was he still kind of having a, a foot in both worlds? That's a really good question because it was, by the time I was born, I'm the youngest. Okay. Um, which is scary. <laughs> but uh, when I was born, he more or less had already transitioned out of being a full-time musician, but he still had the dream and the ambition. Sure. So when he seen that I was taking the music, he was kind of full in with showing me everything he knew. Yeah. And kind of was really like headstrong on the idea, not only learn as much about every kind of music as you can, but he also put me in school and lessons and theory and all that stuff at a really young age, because cool. he was like, that's the one thing I never had. Mm -hmm. He's like, so if you're gonna be a musician, I want you to be an educated one. I don't want you to just know chords and sure. shake your way through things. Wing it, yeah. you know? So my dad has a lot of credibility for kind of getting me started and getting me where I'm at today. You know? And what was he playing? He was a guitar player. Okay. And so, uh, was that your chosen path, or? Uh, yes. I mean, in the beginning, obviously now it is, but in the beginning, <laughs> since the beginning, it's always been guitar. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I took the path of any 10, 11 year old kid thinking that like, if I play guitar, I'll get the prettiest girls Dude, on I planet Earth. Dude, I love the <laughs> It got me no girls in middle school. It got me no Zero. girls. I was a short, chubby <laughs> kid still, and I just, Went from being a short, chubby kid to a short, chubby kid with a guitar and a used one. Yeah. But, uh, no, man, but I, I started off on guitar, but um, once I started playing it, I don't know, man, it started, it's ironic. I started to try to get girls, and then when I started playing, I was passing up dates to play guitar. Sure. I loved it. It just got in my blood, and, you know, guitar has always been my first passion, songwriting and guitar playing. Sure. You know? Um, oftentimes, I find that for, for the musicians that start off early in age, um, they see several different, I guess, pros to um, playing an instrument. Yeah. And sometimes one of those is the camaraderie that they find with like-minded people. Sometimes kids get together and form their own band, so oh, yeah. they're always hanging out or, you know, um, 
Was there anything else other than your father being an inspiration that also appealed to you uh, about playing music? Yeah, man. Well, growing up in Baker, Scotlandville, a lot of what I went through as a kid, being honest, was being like the only white kid in the neighborhood. You know, mm -hmm. you dealt with a lot of, <laughs> you had to fight to go to school. You had to basically fight everywhere you went. And there was a lot of things going on in that city at the time, you know, a lot of drugs, a lot of things that I could have easily fallen into. Sure. And I used music almost as a therapy and an escape from that. To me, like playing music was something that took me away from that poverty because we, we grew up poor. You know, I was just like any other poor kid in the, in the city. So mm -hmm. growing up that way and living and constantly <laughs> going to school and having to fight every day to get where I had to be, having to constantly prove myself. Because in a city like that, you either have to be tough or fake like you're tough <laughs> so that you don't have to prove it. Sure. Music was such an escape from that. I can be who I really wanted to be. I can imagine I was something other than what I was as a kid. So that's really what the lifeblood of music was for me. I, I guess if you really want to look at it correctly, it kind of saved my life. Mm -hmm. It kind of kept me out of the path of a lot of people that I know went down, including my own family. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still remember as a child, my grandmother had a piano and I would go sit in front of the piano. I don't recall my age, maybe nine or something, kind of young. But uh, I would feel different. I mean, it was almost like laying on the doctor's couch for a moment or something. Like you just walk away with this peaceful sense and this, this sanity that comes out of nowhere. It was just you and the instrument, you know? Yeah, it was therapeutic for me as well, man. I can totally relate to what you're saying. It, uh, it yeah. just is something spiritual about it. Sure. Know? I'm very spiritual. So he started, your father started you in music lessons. Um, this was like professional music theory classes yes. that you were taking. Yeah, like I said, I was a poor kid and I wasn't, I was kind of a, getting in a lot of trouble as a kid. So I never went to college for music, but I did get the formal college education without the degree, so to speak. I went to personal tutors and things like that. And they began to teach me the theory and, and the scales and how to apply mm -hmm. these things where Basically, when I went from childhood to adolescence, people started noticing, hey, man, this guy's um, hanging with people on guitar that are years older than him. You know, and then also having the, the upbringing you had, <laughs> you're naturally going to go into the blues. <laughs> so I started playing in a lot of blues bands and stuff like that, and that's how I started getting my name around as mm -hmm. a guitarist. And you started at uh, Theory at what age? I started Theory at about 11. 11? Yeah. What are kids playing on at 11 years old? What, I mean, is this an 11 year old sized guitar? I mean, how does I that still work? have this guitar. Man. Do you really? It was a PVT60 cool. guitar from the 80s. And it, um, man, this thing is a hunk of wood, man. You can use this thing as a boat paddle. So you started on electric? I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know. Well, that, like I said, you know, like I wanted to get girls, so an acoustic guitar, I was like, like I don't want to be like a freaking Esteban, I want to be like a freaking Slash. Give me an electric sure. guitar, man. Yeah. Yeah. What so. were you listening to at the time? Green Day. Okay. <laughs> I think we share Which that. It's funny because yeah. we had two different eras of Green Day. Yeah. I really liked the American Idiot album. That's when I was in like seventh grade and I was angsty. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was catchy and almost... My voice kind of sounds like Billy Joe Armstrong a little bit, so I was like, yeah, I can sing this, I can play this, this yeah. is awesome. And you yeah. got more like the Nimrod years, huh? No, really, I'm the Dookie years, man. Like, I'm a little older than Phil here, so like, the first song by Green Day 
that came out was in like 94. I was like nine. Okay. <laughs> I'm a little older than Phil. But um, the song was uh, Basket Case. Mm -hmm. And the, the video is what grabbed me, man, how they were in this mental institution and all this stuff. And when I heard punk rock, I immediately was like, this, this is relatable to me. Really? <laughs> it really is. You would say, never it, think it. Would it throw yeah. you for a loop coming from uh, where you came from? Yeah. Right, man. That's kind of like going back to like studying all these different kinds of music. There's something about punk rock that I always really related to the rebellion of it all. Sure. You know, being a, a rebellious kid, I would hear this, and I started going back in time and listening to like the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, you know, the Misfits, all these people, and I was like, these guys are great, even though I'm dub country rock I, I really like all this kind of music yeah know, so, yeah i kind of paint country and punk almost the same way in a sense where yeah. there's a saying about country where it's uh it's three chords in the truth yeah and i feel <laughs> that punk is a lot the same way that is true where it's like you know it's more of the songs of like it's not the polished written songs it's the songs from like the streets like the uh yeah the mass population just getting up and being like i got something to say i'm gonna get on the stage and slam on these power chords and, yeah and you know what's funny too uh, i guess another parallel you could draw is uh, any country purist I think would bring up and behold uh, outlaw country sacred <laughs> as their roots do you know yeah. what I mean oh, and I it, it's the same phenom where you're you're anti where yeah. you're, you're you're striking your own chord so to speak but um, you're, you're kind of forging your own path regardless of which way the grain's going you know so you know it's really a kind of a testimony to the fact that there really isn't that much of a barrier between musics I mean really if you think about it that's the foundation between me and you as partners you know I mean you come from a totally different style of music and a, and a different perspective of music than I do but we meet right in the middle because we see it the same you know somewhere back in your file cabinet you're like oh i already knew this now i just have like a name for it it's yeah yeah it's all a language man yeah i think it's funny when people cite things as having crossover appeal because their origins are so similar to begin with it's just the presentation i totally agree with that yeah that's kind of funny so you're making your way through music theory and what did you say you were like 12 12 now about 12 13 12 13 um what what keeps you going at that time? I mean, is it is it constantly turning over a new leaf, or is it the pride that you see in your father's eyes, or maybe some of the, the, the frills that we talked about that come with playing music, or what, what kept you going? <laughs> you know, a, lot, a little bit of everything. You know, like, seeing the pride in my father's eyes definitely was something that keeps you motivated. Sure. But also, you know, growing up in a place where you're constantly having to defend yourself, it kind of was an outlet for me, you know, it was something that like if I was angry or if I was sad or if I was happy, you know, I could put that into this instrument, you know, and it was just, it was unjudgmental to me. You could just put out whatever you feel on the instrument and it turned, it went from trying to learn how to play and this is something I think for every musician that's important. You go from learning how to play to learning how to express yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when it started turning into an expression, I was hooked. You know, I, I started writing my own songs. I started wanting. I was going to ask, were you writing at that point, or just kind of experimenting? Well, you know, a lot. I don't know how every other musician is, but for me, it seemed like the minute I picked up a guitar, I was writing. From from day one, mm -hmm. it sucked, <laughs> but I was writing something. I always wanted to be. 
I looked at a guitar as more as an in, rather than an instrument. It was something for me to express myself. Sure. So from the first week of me playing it, I was already trying to write songs. I didn't even know chords yet, but I'm still trying to write. You know. So the path for you was straight to original material as opposed to mm -hmm. trying to, I guess, play some of the popular songs of the day, or yeah. a little bit of both, or just writing your own. Well, to be honest, it was writing. You know, I had no concern. <laughs> and playing someone else's music. I didn't really get into doing that until I realized that I have to make money if I want to keep playing music, you know, which is kind of sad, <laughs> but yeah. But from day one, it was all about songwriting. I wanted to be my own artist. I wanted to play my own trail. And yeah. anybody who got in my way needed to get out of my way was kind of my philosophy. And back then, um, what would you say your genre was? It was country blues-ish? I mean, is it the same? now as it was then or have you kind of changed over the years definitely have changed in the very beginning it was straight rock and roll okay it was um heck in those years i mean it was green day it was 311 it was sublime so you were playing punk yeah okay my first band name was called crotch okay well that's probably <laughs> punk that's it's very punk i was totally punk man i'm talking like dye my hair orange and go out there and stage dive um, like what really got me the first thing that really made me go, whoa, about live audiences, I was at a Green Day concert mm -hmm. and Billy Joe like, asked if anybody in the crowd, something he commonly does, asked if anybody plays guitar. Well, my brother at the time just like lifted me higher than anyone else and this dude gets me on stage. Nice. And I look out in this crowd and there are just thousands and thousands of people and I'm like, I'm scared, but it's like, I am alive. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like I start like he, he everyone asked me at the time, like, what did he say to you? They act, like they turned it into like, was it this magical mystery thing that Billy Joe Armstrong told you? Well what he told me was, look dude, I really hope you know how to play. The chords are G, D, and C. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, yeah, I, I know that. And the dude just he gives me the guitar, he does this to the crowd, and he kisses me square in the mouth. <laughs> He's like, Mwah! And I'm like, and when I started playing and the crowd started going nuts, I knew from there, man, crowd applause and live audiences are quite addictive. Yeah. <laughs> I was addicted and I've been that way ever since. How old were you when that happened? Dude, I was like 14. Wow. I was a kid. I think that's probably why he let me get up because I was just a kid. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen the shtick before with other bands doing that and I never stopped to think what's going through that kid's mind. I mean, some of them, doesn't really phase them because they, they, don't, they don't really appreciate what they're looking at across the stage. They you don't. Know? But yeah. um, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, every hair on your body's got to stand on Oh, it. man. <laughs> it, it really was. It's like for, for weeks on end, I was just, yeah. you know, I was, I was so, <laughs> so freaking excited about that. And I never really got over it. To this day, I still think about it. I'm like, Phew. <laughs> <laughs> Phew. I mean, yeah. That's awesome. That coffee's not going to do it for you, I can tell you right nah, now. Nah, <laughs> man, I don't play in front of 80,000 people. Right, <laughs> your coffee's going to suck. <laughs> that's funny. Um, that's cool to me that your dad was encouraging, even though it wasn't his chosen genre. And honestly, uh, every, not just musician, but people in general talk about um, not so much a generational gap, but uh, just, I guess, a misinterpretation where we come out with our own preferences and likes and the generation before us just doesn't understand it. It's yeah. not real music and all of this. But he, he was behind you 100%. And he actually got a lot of a flack lot. for that. Like a lot of, because at the time, you know, like here I am 
in high school dropping out of school and so now I'll go I ended up going back but I'm dropping out and doing all this stuff when a lot of dads would have been like nah man go get a job and quit doing it. he was like look if you're gonna do this you can't do it halfway he's mm -hmm. like because there's too many people out there and there's too many people who are better than you yeah. he's like you have to know that at this age there are musicians on the street homeless that's gonna outplay you out of the city. Yeah. <laughs> and if you understand that, you're gonna have to understand that there's a lot more than just your raw talent that's gonna get you to make it. You're gonna have to be a promoter. You're gonna have to be a salesman. You're gonna have to really push your own. You're gonna have to understand the business side of music or you're not going to survive. How old are you that he's he's He was telling me that at like 15 years old. Man. 15 years old, yeah, he's, he's laying like, out with life. He's laying out the birds and the bees in terms of a contract. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, uh, okay. Were you, you know. hearing him? To, uh, let me say this. I'm hearing him more and more the older I get older. I, I was, hearing what he said yeah but at 15 how could you really know that yeah you're gonna have to understand the business logic of music all i'm thinking about is i want to play a bar chord and get laid you know? right but um nowadays the more older i get and the more our business grows i start hearing these words back at me and it's like he was right you know from from the start. Yeah, it's one yeah. thing as a kid to go, oh yeah, yeah, no, I understand. And another thing to like make the mistakes that lead you to true understanding. I think that's <laughs> the only way to do it. I mean, you, the first inclination of, of me, at least coming up, was to blow off whoever was trying to give me that kind of real life lesson, you know? And then maybe yeah. you reflect on it some night 10 years later and you're like, that was Yoda talking to me yeah. in the flesh. And I was just blowing them off, that's amazing. <laughs> But yeah, your parents' words come to life and nothing is truer. Yeah. Um, they just, maybe you didn't, you heard it a little too early on, you know? Yeah, I was really young, but it, it makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> but so, um, you ended up going back to school though. Um, yeah. Was, uh, was that part of the life lesson too? He said, get your diploma or what? Pretty much, man. You know, like I'd gotten into a lot of trouble at school and was basically like, get out of here, you know? But my dad, well, my mom was really kind of like, Look, I'm totally in support of you being a full-time musician, and obviously your father is, but it would personally mean something to me if you at least got your diploma. Mm -hmm. So I went back, and I ended up going like Parkview Baptist, and um, I got my diploma and graduated, and then I was off to playing gigs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got the paper. Got the paper, still have it. Golden you know. ticket. So yeah. I'm out of here. I'm out of here, you know. So um, that was it for you then, right after high school, uh, and during the course of high school, had you started any bands on your own? Because up until now, you've only spoken about yourself playing. Yeah, I'd had a band when I was in high school, and it didn't really pan out. You know, we were playing at like talent shows and stuff like that. We were quite awful. And um, <laughs> but I'd started a band. I was always in pursuit of building a band. But um, you know, I was doing that and doing a lot of solo stuff where I would just sit down with a guitar and try to sing. You know, so. Yeah, I would say in my high school years, I had formed a band or two and was mostly just doing a lot of solo stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Nothing paying yet. You know, I was just trying to play anywhere I could. I'd play on the street corner for nothing that they would let me. I'm sure. Still will. <laughs> did that suit you more, solo? Uh, it did at first because uh, at that age, I wasn't the best at timing. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. You got a drummer that's trying to keep time and a bass player trying to keep time, which is something you know a million things about. You know, it wasn't the easiest thing. Yeah, clappers, you know, but it wasn't the easiest at that age. So I like playing solo because I had my own sense of timing. But now it's, I love playing with a band and all that, you know. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. 
Um, when did it start to feel serious to you? I mean, I know playing gigs sometimes feels serious to people, but I, I guess you reach a certain point in your life where the, the momentum the momentum is is undeniable, I guess, yeah. or it's a feeling inside you where things are just starting to kind of make sense and fall into place. That's really a part of my life where actually Phil is going to come into the that, picture a lot more. Yeah, that's pretty much where we met. That's where we met. Because here's the thing, you know, into my 20s, I began touring a lot. I was a music director for a Grammy-winning blues artist named Grady Champion out mm -hmm. of Canton, Mississippi. And I went to Europe, you know, two times with him and then toured all around the United States and did all this stuff. But I never really applied the business aspects and all these things. And I basically got involved with a girl at the time and formed a little group with her. And things didn't work out, you know, and when all that ended up falling flat, me and Phil had already kind of met through a mutual drummer of mine. And we had played in a band and then kind of went our separate ways, but I never forgot about his talent. And I always thought, man, I could really build something with this guy. And from there, when this relationship ended and you know, playing for this blues guy ended up basically falling through. After a while, I decided to leave and do my own thing. I started really thinking about my future in music and what I need to do and needing to go my own path and needing to get to the radio and needing to get to the mainstream a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I called Phil up one night and I was like, look, man, you know, he had recorded some of our first recordings, but we hadn't finished the album yet. And um, we had a serious talk that night about what needs to happen and what he wants to do, what I want to do. And from there, we just started, it started off just talking about the future. And it just kept building and growing and growing. And a lot of times, like at that point in my life, I lost a lot of confidence in myself. You know? Well, I was going to ask what triggered such a deep introspective look, you know? Well, you know what? To be completely honest about it, you know, I was with this girl and it was kind of a belittling situation where I had put myself in the background to try to promote her in the in the front of it, you know. And then it just kind of, you realize near the end of that that you're kind of being used. <laughs> and when all that ended, a lot of stuff in the town started happening, a lot of rumors got started, you know how that is. And it basically just left you feeling, you know, like you're, you're in pieces there. And I just needed somebody who didn't have a lot of skin in the game, somebody who knew me as a person and knew my talent, but didn't care about all the drama around. And that's what led me to call Phil. You know, that's the honest truth about it. I'll let you speak a little well, bit about the, it. That was the funniest thing, is just the fact that, you know, we, we know each other through business. Yeah. And when, you, when you're in Will's situation, you have not only your relationship, but a business that you invested a lot into all kind of go down in flames at once like yeah. that. Like all of a sudden, it's like, how do I pick up and start again? Because I have a lot to start over with, a yeah. lot of things that I need in my life. So I remember getting a call at 11 o'clock at night, you know, being like, I, I don't really know where to go from here. And it's like, all right, well, I've played with you. I was producing some stuff for you. I know you got a lot of stuff. I think your main plea to me was like, it was like, just, just help me record these songs. I have these songs to do. Please help me record these songs and get them out there. And that's where it started. And eventually we started getting, I think COVID hit. Oh, God. And once COVID hit, we were working together lightly, but it was like, okay, well, we have to figure out how to adjust. So let's start, say, trying to write jingles for people. 
you know, like commercial jingles, try and make some money. And through that, we had to start a business. And then from there, it became very, okay, now we're becoming official. Now it's almost like the development of, okay, now we have an LLC. Now we have to pay taxes like this. Now we have to, you know, also sure. get a bank account sure. for the business. It became more, the, more professional. Um, he said you recorded some tracks for him prior to y'all working together? Essentially, so I had had my own band for a while named <laughs> Orange Joe. And I was... It was a lot of stuff that I had written. Orange and, Joe? Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, I don't know if you watched Futurama. Uh, yeah. Is that the... Is that the that's, where I, that's where I was going. Well, I didn't yeah. even know that. I'm glad to hear that. Either <laughs> way. Uh, it was my favorite cartoon. But uh, I had had some stuff that I was producing as self-made LP. And then I had met Will and we were doing some bar gigs for some money. And he was like, I have some songs that I write. And we started working some up. And it was like, okay, let's cut a single. So we cut a single. It's like, oh, well, let me hear your next single. And so we basically started doing piece by piece, and then he was like, look, I had all this rock stuff we were going to do, and then I met this girl, now I have all this stuff I want to do, and I just have all this stuff. So basically we made a double album out of it. During COVID, we decided, you know, it's either we don't have gigs, so we can try and make money elsewhere by doing jingles, but let's use the time and make this a social media thing. Let's record, let's still reach our people the way yeah. that we can during this. Yeah. And we basically finished up a double record with like 17 songs on it. Yeah. Put it out there. It was so polar as far as like, this is country rock, rock and roll, but this other side is complete traditional country Americana. So we basically had two sides of country to try and market it to. So. Yeah, and, and what's, you know, getting back to the original question about taking it seriously, um, look, there's no doubt that the COVID, you know, pandemic was something that was terrible on the world as a whole. But I'm also a believer that you can take luck and turn it around. And really the COVID pandemic is really where we started to kind of flourish in a sense because it made us have to change our thinking from just playing gigs to having to look at it from a more promotional stand view and then it led to this album coming out mm -hmm. and the story behind the album both sides of the tracks is really where things started going wow this is <laughs> this is changing you know i mean people radio stations were, were playing this all over the world and being like y'all recorded this as a two-man <laughs> partnership and right. it's playing all over the world you know so that really was when we went from just being a bar band to really being more of an original act <coughs> taken seriously. Yeah. It was funny that you brought up how uh, polar the first album was, because I don't think that's very uncommon um, yeah. with bands that are just getting together and putting out their first yeah. piece of work, especially if it's not something that they're sitting on for very many years. Yeah. The material may accumulate over time, and that takes years to come together, and probably it comes from different sources within the band so the the, yeah. the influence the influences are different you put it together and it feels strange because it's on one body of work but it's yeah. it's many different influences and um it happened at the same time as covid which was a fork in the road for a lot of musicians yes. so it, it kind of forced you to up your business game a little yeah. bit and kind of choose a lane as far as your 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 genre and your style i suppose yes. but um a lot of people, man, just like you said, turn your luck around. There's so many musicians that I've interviewed that it was the genesis for their first solo album, or it was yeah. the reason that they came out with 41 music videos in 30 days on social media. It yeah. caused people to, to try and reach out and interact 
um, in different mediums. We were all forced to, you know. Yeah, Nobody knew what festing in place was or streaming right. or any of these things, you know. Live stream concerts. Right, and it became commonplace all of a sudden. So, I mean, it kind of, it opened up new opportunities that um, there were just alternatives that weren't there before, you know. Yeah. It, made, uh, it made us kind of think, because there were a lot of people who said, said there were a lot of people who just started selling everything. They are just like, you know what? Yeah, they had groups disbanded. I'm, I'm, I'm done with all this. Yeah. And the way we looked at it was, Either we're going to do this, or we're going to be one of the few who are left on the other side, who have been constant through this and have had you know something built by the end of this, so that by the end of this, we're ready to go. Yeah, you know, we've got a show. We've got people who want to get out there and see music. We're here. Sure. You know, and even on a more sentimental side, you know, the album that we released, both sides of the tracks, a lot of the musicians and promoters on that record are no longer here. You wow. know, like we did a duet with a, um, a very talented blues man out of Greenville, Mississippi named Kern Pratt. Mm -hmm. And Kern was one of those blues guys that to me was always underappreciated. He never really got his due in music, but he lives on one of the tracks on that album called A New Kind of Blues. Yeah. And he passed on. Like like we uh, we recorded the track, it got on blues radio worldwide. It's about COVID. And it's about COVID and then he died of COVID. Wow. Like Christmas Eve Christmas Eve, man. So it's almost like this album is in a spiritual way keeping the memory alive of a lot of people. Um, Absolutely. Kenneth Dunn, who promoted. Yeah, we put that out during the pandemic and it was like, oh, this is topical, you know, and it's a blues tune and blues people love blues, especially yeah. new blues mm -hmm. at any time. So it's like, oh, it's topical, it's new blues. It got out there and Kern got like, pretty much like a last hurrah, like a last strong hurrah. Sure. Like in the last, because I mean, we released it and then like, it was, I think it was like four months later he passed on. Man, it was, a, it was a polarizing and traumatizing time. You know, like Kern passed, Kenneth Dunn, who was a longtime booking agent of ours, passed. And then my very own brother, who was instrumental in this album, passed as well. So at that time, you know, like I look at that album as a very personal experience because even okay. though my brother didn't record on it, he was involved in it. So to me, all these people who helped launch this album, you know, I hate to say it, but at this point, a lot of it, the, all that's really left at the helm is really me and you, Phil, and the team behind us, but we lost a lot of good people during that, you know, and sure. I've never forgotten it. You know? I kind of look at them as like, uh, they can act anyway, as, as time capsules, so to speak, because they kind of preserve where you were at emotionally and mentally during that part of your life, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's time in a bottle, man. That's yeah. that's really what the album is to me. Yeah, you know, to you it's probably a, a lot of heavy lifting work, man. You worked hard, and and he does need more props as a producer, man. The great work you did on that album still stands out. It, it was fun. Well, I was lucky enough with uh, with COVID, we were actually able to get some killer players that we wouldn't be able to get otherwise. One of like nice. the one that I like put in the spotlight is uh, we got Michael Cleveland. Mm -hmm. He's literally like he wins like <laughs> best bluegrass fiddle award like years in a row mm -hmm. like he's like the guy in nashville it's like oh yeah he's like this blind guy with a killer touch pretty much plays anything you want out of like folk instruments but he is i think he was on grand Ole Opry at nine years old wow played behind allison krauss doc watson marty stewart 
some of the best in country music, and I'm like, man, this guy's recording our album. It's like, man, that was exciting, huh? Absolutely monster. And he was so nice. He was like, let me know if there's any changes you want to make. I'm all ears. So I was like, dude, this is beautiful. Dude, he cut <laughs> it in one take. One take. so easy. Yeah. Where did y'all work on this project? Well, that's the cool thing about it is that we formed our own label, Homegrown Productions and Roanoke Records. Uh -huh. And what makes me and Phil different from a lot of artists is that everything that comes out under my name or his, comes out of that label. It's become more modern now for people to take it home and do it themselves, but basically what we did during COVID is we said, okay, we have some friends who record drums. Let's get in the studio, get the drums, but everything else can be done from our house. Sure. You know, we've got amps, we've got mics, mm -hmm. we can make it loud. So we pretty much sat in the house and worked everything out for months and months and months. And basically <laughs> had an at-home record that Sounds pretty damn good. Well, yeah. that to me is the beauty of it. <laughs> you know, having a record that come out of our own minds and homes that are it's so stripped down like that for it to go worldwide really blew me away. And I have some well, funny memories. Yeah, you're used to tape, like studio the country. Yeah, man, stuff. I was recording on tape and stuff. That's how like I I like the sound of it. But I remember a story in general that I thought was really funny was <laughs> I was talking with Kern Pratt and I said look, we want to get your vocals, your guitar playing. He's like, well, what studio are we going to go to? I mean, COVID's done shut everything down. I said, we're going to come to you, man. And he was like, in what way is that? I was like, Phil's going to bring a little laptop, <laughs> a few boxes, man, and we'll get it going. Well, we get over there. I think Kern was on his about, about his fifth beer. <laughs> yeah. And he's like. Getting bluesy. Yeah, he got very bluesy. And then um, we, we record this and get it done. And he's like, okay. When he hears the finished product, he's like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm like, well, and you recorded it drunk, and that's what's really brilliant. Well, I, I pull everything out. He has a laptop, a couple preamps, getting ready for the microphones, and he's like, that's a studio? That's all you need? It's like, that's all you need today. Yeah, and this is not 1967, man. It's, like, it's become so easy for musicians to make their own stuff at home now. That was the thing with COVID was we actually got in a little bit of hot water because we kept trying to put stuff out, and we kept getting... Uh, guess communications back from the distribution people being like look usually it takes us like two weeks to get this done that's fine but right now everybody's stuck inside everybody's making music everybody's sending it to us really it's gonna take longer for us we're not gonna be able to meet the due date that you want right? Yeah, right. oh boy well, we told everybody we're <laughs> gonna have to push that release date back a little bit yeah so and you know, people were in COVID, they were entertainment lists almost, and they were like, when is this stuff coming out? We, really? We, you know, yeah. we were waiting on it. Like, well, yeah. that's funny. That kind of solidifies the idea that, that uh, COVID was uh, the inspiration for a lot of work. It was. A man. lot of creative works. You have a lot of people who are used to being out there and expressing themselves in spotlights to other people, and now they, you have cooped them up once again and made them... Yeah, well, I mean, that, as an artist, too, think about it. You, you got time spent uh, making an album, you have time spent touring for that album. So a lot of times these guys, if they're getting tons of gigs, they're not setting, setting aside that time necessary for the for the writing process, do you know what I mean? Yeah, man, at times, and I, I don't mean this in a negative light, uh, uh, the pandemic was terrible, but at times I miss the freedom of just creating sure. something where you're not obligated. Because see, once the COVID pandemic ended, me and Phil were fortunate that we had laid down the groundwork to become a touring act, more of a touring act, and to get on the road more and more. And now <laughs> things are rolling so fast that 
we have to look at it almost like Eminem does. Like this is a nine, nine to five job. We get there Monday through Sunday and we're working constantly just to make sure that the tours and the content and all this happen, you know? It's like we pretty much just started being able to travel out more to places like what last year we went to Ohio and Switzerland. We just got back from Bangkok. And now there's travel stuff involved in a whole nother world of the business. You know, we're musicians and now we have to be semi-lawyers and accountants. You gotta be it, dude. If there's anybody that's like the, the most anti-business people on this earth, it's musicians, which is such uh, the irony, you know, to see people try to insert themselves. Not so much insert themselves, but to protect themselves. Yeah. You know, I'm a musician. I don't want to file this paperwork. It's like, dude, I started you know? playing music so that I didn't have to be a businessman. Yeah, right. And I woke <laughs> up one day and I'm a and businessman, yeah. you know? <laughs> What's interesting to me though is it's almost like the literal, like almost purest form of capitalism in a sense where it's like, I have something in my brain that I have made for you. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. But don't steal it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like you have to earn people's respect through your work. You can't just be like, hey, you know, is this good enough for you? Sure. You know, what's ironic that speaking of is that your father sat you down at 15 and warned you about the business side of things, yeah. and maybe you didn't hear it at 15, but when it came to the pandemic, or I'm sorry, after after your fallout um, with the first arrangement you had with the young lady, um, business again was brought to the forefront. It actually was the steps that took you out of the hole that you found yourself in. I don't think no words can be truer because, you know, it's funny, the things you hear as a kid, you remember, you know, it leaves a lasting impression on you. and. It seems like even then I was always looking for the right people. And I will tell you that in this business, the right people can make or break you from a sound man to a business partner. If you don't have the right people, you will not find success. Yeah. And, and that always stayed on my mind from my dad's words to me is that I got to find like-minded people with the same work ethic and the same drive. And every bump in the road from the pandemic down the line has always brought me back to those words. You know, get it back to the foundation, get the right people behind you and start pulling through all this. You know? Sure, it's a refining process. For yeah, sure. so those words have kind of stayed with me my whole life and they will continue to. It's know? always the stuff that you're just like, why didn't, I, why didn't I listen to that back then? That really just like drives all your decisions <laughs> home like later. It's like, I could have been doing this all along. I think our vision gets clouded, man, because we refute the, the simplest forms of advice and, and really yeah. at, it, at its essence, that's what we needed to hear. We were just too pig-headed at the time, you too know. Young. Yeah. Too young, too, too pig-headed. So sure. yeah. I used to substitute uh, like high school and like, they didn't understand how I felt about these kids because, uh, you know, I was there for a job. I wanted to get out and go gig. You know, I wanted to be there less than they did. And they were like, I don't understand why this, you know, younger person I babysit is so stupid. I try and help them <laughs> so much. I try and help them. I try and tell them things to help them. They don't listen. I'm like... You're not going to do that piece of paper that I gave you. It's going to take you 10 minutes to do yeah. for 90 minutes. Yeah. I'm trying to help you. Like, I'm telling you things to help you. Resist. I think that's where they go with that. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally, in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today, I've got a guy who's a longtime site member and supporter. And quite frankly an invaluable asset to the music community. 
George Casido. Now he's on NewOrleansMusicians.com with a local punk band, The Grooks. But he's got a new project to which I'd like to draw your attention. It's a two-piece by the name of Mimic, M-I-M-I-C. While their work has obvious roots in thrash, it really cannot be defined as dwelling in one or two genres. Trust me, I've heard a few of these unreleased tracks and they really run the gamut. We've got an interview dropping with him soon that was really interesting. This guy's an absolute wealth of knowledge in the field. Metalheads and bassists especially are going to want to check that out. So be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening and you'll know right when that hits. But listen, I won't keep you any longer. I'm going to play a snip of their upcoming release. You can find it on NewOrleansMusicians.com as well as Bandcamp and Reverb Nation under, once again, Mimic, M-I-M-I-C. So uh, this one's called Within a Nulled Future. Check it out, y'all. Back to our show. Yeah. So what what uh, followed um, both sides of the tracks? What what followed that? Um, did you? Because at that point, that body of work was put together with not a band technically. It was a it was a duo. It was a yeah. partnership, and you had very steely Danish, <laughs> right? Guest appearances from many other people. So yeah. Um, what were your thoughts after that? I mean, that's an accomplishment. You made it to that, that tier. Yeah. What do you do after that? Man, I'm really glad you asked that question because it's the first time it's been asked to me. Right. And believe it or not, the way I think as an artist and as a person, what followed was a lot of fear and insecurity. Okay. I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to match that kind of, call me superstitious, but that kind of creative integrity, that kind of outlet, you know, that we found on both sides of the tracks. Just Represented live or, or with, a, with a, a the next album? A new body, the next okay. album. Next you know, album. Like I was worried that, to me, I'm always a believer that you're only as good as your last great work. Sure. And I'm not saying that the work was great or no, I'm not that kind of guy, but we got a lot of, we got a lot of props for that album, you know, and it kind of started the whole Will and Phil and all that. And to this day, I was really worried that the follow-up would be a letdown because I see that with so many artists. They come out with a great body of work and then it just falls well, off. Well, the pressure comes on at that point. Right. But I think the saying is you have your entire life to write your first album. Yeah. And then after that, it's like, oh, you have a very short amount of time to do better than you did. Yes, Absolutely. yes, exactly. Absolutely. So for me, the success was wonderful in the moment. <laughs> yeah. But the writing process, the touring process, there's a lot of, like Phil said, pressure on you to live up to that same expectation. And life happens. And I'm a writer that kind of writes his own story through the life he lived. Mm -hmm. And a lot of dark things happen since then. And we're currently working on a new album um, called Ready to Ride. Mm -hmm. And we, were, we already laid down the tracks, we're shooting music videos, and I've noticed that this new record is going to probably be the darkest installment of my career. There's a lot of, a lot more rock elements, a lot more dark themes, you mm -hmm. know, from the death of my brother, which naturally took a, a heavy, heavy toll on me. 
and just things that have happened from those days. There's a there's just a different person sitting here that was not there in 2020. I'm a little wiser, but a little bit more roughed up, a roughed up a little bit. Yeah, yeah it's it's still healthy. I think it's necessary. I don't think we can relate to life or stay grounded unless we have struggles. You know that yeah. we come through positively. You know on the other side instead of letting it all fall apart. Um, so when was that? When was that first release? When was that first? Uh, Ready to ride? Yeah. We're no, 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 no. Uh, uh, both sides of the tracks. Twenty twenty. Okay, twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, so, following that, you said you were eyeballing uh, maybe the difficulties you were going to face with the next album. Yeah. But were there plans to? I guess it's kind of a crazy question because I mean we're in the middle of a pandemic. But did you did you want? Was your intention to tour? Yes. On that first album. Yeah, the pandemic never stopped my dream, and and when that happened, I just said, look. We're just gonna make, me and Phil talked about it, we're gonna, we're gonna do what we have to do during this pandemic, but we always were hopeful that this pandemic would end. Mm. So our goal was to build it up during the pandemic to where when the pandemic ended, we were out there touring. And what, what does that mean, build it up? Uh, build up our dreams and career. Up. Well, it's like we started attacking, Campaign. like say something like radio. You know, we okay. started reaching out to every radio station we could, being like, look, people are trapped in, people are looking, they have nothing to do, but consume media of some sort. Yeah. Sure. So we started basically reaching out and being like, how can we get this in people's tiny little world while they're stuck inside? So we started gotcha. making YouTube. I mean, uh, we'll make like a trilogy of YouTube videos for like music videos. Yeah. Basically where you follow one character through a couple of different things. And so now it's a almost like a music video mini series. Yeah. You know, basically laying all this promo where people are always looking at screens. Right. How do we get on the screen so that when finally the gates open up and people are blinded looking at the sunlight poking through, you know, there's us. Yeah, we were the work. Yeah, we were trying to build up the social media and, and uh, the media in general to where when the pandemic ended, everybody knew who we were. Mm -hmm. Then we could start the touring process. You gotcha. know? And like Phil said, we, we released a trilogy of videos that people were still constantly asking me, what does what that trilogy mean? <laughs> and um, it definitely has a deeper meaning to it. But um, after the pandemic ended, that's when we really started touring a lot. That's when we started getting out there and moving around, you know. Yeah, I think in a couple of years, you know, we, we look back on it, I think there was a New Year's, I don't remember what year it was, I think it was like 2019 or something, but we played this this tiny little <laughs> Pioneer Bar, super small up in Natchez, Mississippi, <laughs> rowdy parties, place gets packed, but it's a smaller room, we think back to that versus like over the couple of years, what we started doing, uh, you know, community events like Music in the Park here in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Uh, we got to tour Europe last year. Last year we got to open for Alabama, like nice. in Natchez, Mississippi. We, we just got back from Bangkok playing some shows. We're like, this started with us. In a, in a home, with an idea. <laughs> yeah, pretty much like in a home studio, making this giant record and pushing it out there. Basically like, we can't go play, what do we do? Well, let's just do this. Let's just try and get the ambition. The, world. the ambition, it fits, you know? You can have a lot of ambition and, and not many opportunities, but you can have little ambition and a lot of opportunities and it's just not gonna be the same result, It's a balance, you know? it's, a, yeah. it's a balance, you know? That's incredible, man. I keep telling myself it's the journey, you know? Sure, oh, yeah. sure. Um, so, once again, with the, with the business aspect, um, at this point in time, after both sides of the tracks, and you're, you've campaigned for a moment, and you want to try and get out, I guess, and, and greet the end of the pandemic with, with starting to perform live again, um, what, what elements 
are you doing yourselves and what elements I'll say smart enough to dictate to others because a lot of times people want to take on everything themselves. They don't realize that delegating is a, is a superpower. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? It, well, and that, good question, you know, because it's like it started out with just me and you, you know, but as the pandemic ended and as we started touring, you know, we definitely had to start bringing in other people to help with the label because, you know, it's not just me on the label. You're on the label. Mm -hmm. We're... Developing. Yeah, it's a matter of expertise and trying, just trying to keep the circle tight with our friends in a sense. Because like going around this community, I think it was Rob Zombie who said, you know, like you could you could have 20 people that can sit in your band and play awesome with you and make you sound fantastic, and then there's like five that you can live with, you know. Sure. Or depend on really. Depend yeah, on. That's that's something I believe in. Thing in this yeah. Industry, people just play out on you. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no reason. He said it early on uh, that that. The, the kind of people that meet your or match your work ethic. Yeah, they have to be like-minded. That's a lot of people have asked, what is the dynamic between me and Chandler here? And I think that what it is is that we have the same ambition and we think alike, you know. And that's what that's what drives us well, to continue. We're two opposite things in a sense. Like he is very much a people person, and I'm very much the uh, backroom computer screens productions to where like I realize where there are things, you know, such as. I'm a pretty good audio engineer, but I know there are people who are way better than me. Sure. So I will get it to where I like it and then delegate it to a fresh pair of ears and be like, you know, you do your thing with this. Yeah. You know, I can talk to you on a technical level, but I'll leave it up to your expertise. Yeah. And especially on sound stuff. But I mean, we've been trying to get everything in house as far as videos and all that kind of stuff because nowadays the world is putting out what constant content. Yeah. Sure. It's like the, the days of the album of working, you know, a whole year that it's one product, you know, in the modern age, it's like the internet. Well, the product it's expired. Gone. It's a stone it's age. Gone. Yeah. It's the, product, stone age. the product itself, the, the relevance of the product expired. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't behoove a band to produce a whole work. Nice. If you got 12 uh, records on there, you release them as singles because each one yeah. of those is a bat, uh, a step up to bat for uh, streaming playlists and all of these yeah. other things. It's cho it's just totally changed the face it's changed. of the music world. It's changed, and one of the things, the way we look at it is the singles come first. You release the singles, get your your media, get everything up, and then probably an album on the back end. But it's really just strictly for selling merch out there on the road. You know, yeah, we sell the merch, but really beyond that, it's really just singles and yeah. I almost see it as an opportunity just because, like, whenever, like, because we're two seven, we're two songwriters. Like, he does his country rock and I do rock on my end. But whenever we've been writing music and wherever I approach things, I always think of it from a singles point of view. Like, you know, I'm listening when I'm, I used to litter pizzas and I used to listen to, like, all these oldies, like, all the 70s <laughs> and stuff. And I'm like, all these songs are super distinct and they have, like, their own, like, catch. There's nothing that sounds like this. There's nothing that sounds like I'm still standing. Right. On John. No, it's just its different. own thing. Yeah. So now it's like, how do I bring this approach to my next song? You know, and it makes it almost a challenge for creatives to be like, okay, so my next thing has to be better than this. Yeah, well, yeah. My next thing has to be better than this. But what it also leaves is an opportunity to be like topical with your life in the sense of you're like, I got something I got to get out there like right now. Something happened to me. Sure. And I really want to put it out there. You don't have to wait for like two years of production schedules. So, oh, well, we got to get all these songs out. No, we got to do all this. It's, it's rapid fire, man. It's rapid it's fire, like, man. Here it is, straight from the heart to the record, you know. What, um, so I, I want to eventually move on to uh, the second body of work, 
but uh, both sides of the tracks, um, you all start booking. Yeah. Um, is this you two working on booking or are you using at a first. booking agent? Is you two at first? Well, you know, there was a certain magic around that album because at first it just started off me and Phil. Mm -hmm. We were, we were getting every magazine around, we were getting every newspaper around, we were, we were just doing all this stuff. And then it basically got to where we started having some booking agents, small, you know, just doing some small work for us. Like we had an agent named Care out in Texas and different people who were booking us around, James Gilly out in Knoxville, yep. Tennessee. And were they for the interest of the, the people that they knew or you were running out of time for yourself to do the bookings or what was the advantage of bringing in expansion you know just kind of getting people out of the state it's easier to get people who know the lay of the land somewhere else because you can be somebody out of state and be like hi i'm this person that you may have never heard of they'll shut the door in your face versus somebody who's like hi i'm from here i probably put some other acts yeah thing. you heard of me <laughs> it's like i've vetted yeah. these people out you can put them under my name sure they know, they know the lay of the land they know which venue uh, are dangerous or not, or which venues yeah. might pay or not. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and it eventually led, man. Like, <laughs> it started off with a couple small agents. Then we got with a little agency that was booking us out, you know, in Florida and stuff like that. And then we ran into our manager from there. So, like, he just um, comes up one day. He's like, y'all are brilliant. He goes, well, we're like, are y'all managing? And we're like, well, we kind of manage ourselves because we got our label, blah, blah, blah. And we basically made a few conversations and kind of got uh, working with our new manager and he's been kind of putting us all all over the world and stuff so, so he's managing and booking yes yeah. okay. so it's basically one of those things where it's like you know okay well we started doing this oh well now some people are helping out now we're getting more opportunities and then you just start meeting people you just start meeting people on weird little gigs that sure. you never thought you would meet anybody on like we played a we're playing a hotel in florida <laughs> yeah. and i remember we met our manager because he uh he was partying at the bar and he was like let's go out to the beach and have a drink i gotta talk to you about some stuff and let's be like, accurate phil let's, let's go out go. to the beach and have a fifth oh yeah <laughs> tennessee jack jack honey Ooh, man what a night but i like, remember half of it let's go talk business and it's like i don't know what's gonna happen he wants to have a conversation and it ended up being something good for us leave no stone unturned honestly you never know what's gonna happen no man, and what's really ironic is I don't know if you'll remember this band or not. It's it's going we're going back to the eighties, man. But uh he, there was a band called When in Rome. They had a song called The Promise mm -hmm. back in like eighty eight or eighty seven. Well our manager <laughs> manages them, along with like cutting crew and, and different bands from the eighties. And the funniest thing is on this beach, you know, we, you know, we don't normally talk business, drinking, and other conversations followed after, but I'll never forget the first thing that he said to me is he's like, my name is Brian, I'm with Central Palms, and uh, I do not work with any country artists, but I'll work with you. And <laughs> he's I went, make an exception for you. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I looked at Phil, me and Phil make all the decisions, and I looked at him, he goes, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, why me? He goes, there's something different about you. He goes, Axl Rose meets Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he was like, call me Monday. Well, I thought he was just drinking and drunk, you know, but I was like, I'm going to follow what we call him. And that's when he started telling me, well, the next thing you know, I get a phone call months into him working with us. And he's like, I manage winning wrong. And I want you to meet the lead singer, you know, and I heard the song, I was like, I remember that song, man. I heard that song, you know, for years. And um, he comes to me and he's like, I want you to cut a country version 
of our new wave 80s classic, The Promise. And I'm like, a country break? We'll just cut it in a Will Wesley style. Yeah, that was a fun phone call to get Will as the producer and somebody who has to shape this country version now. Yeah, I call Phil and I'm like, Phil, we got to produce this song, man. You have to produce it and I have to do my best on it. So the first version we get him is like a goth alternative metal rock version of the song. This is all like the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I promise you, you know, and I get a phone call from my manager. He's like, the, the guitars are like Motorhead. He's like, the vocals, they're Dio, they're, they're it, it's, it's all these things. They hated it. <laughs> I was like, I just did not impress these And I'm like, I'm like, what are we gonna do? He's like, man, we were expecting a country rock thing. He was like, and you come out here, he's like, musically it's brilliant, not the brand we're looking for. I'm talking with Phil and I'm like, Phil, what are we gonna do, man? We gotta, we gotta cut this, we gotta cut a music video. And all of a sudden he just out of nowhere goes, Will, there's only one thing we can do, man. And I went, what's that? He goes, turn it into a line dance. Oh, and I went, honk the honk, talk the talk. Yeah, I'm like, no! Yeah. But uh, we, we, we hashed it out and cut a version of it. And I'm gonna be honest with you, man. We cut the version and I'm like, there's no way under the sky that they're going to accept this version. They're going to kick <laughs> it. We may even lose <laughs> our manager. Yeah, right? I was like, we may lose our manager. I send it off. Our manager calls back. He goes, Will, it's brilliant. It's exactly what we want. I'm like, I like I like the metal version, but I don't care. We're releasing the country version. You can't help that, man. Well, yeah, give them man. what they want. You know? Give them what they want. So it's like, man, we're, we're working on production and videos for that. That's coming out. Well, was the end of it was uh, we had made this version they liked it and we actually not too long ago we went over to LA they have a big 80s group oh, yeah, that, where all these people love to like they'll go and dress all crazy and they get all they got like Brett Michaels on this year all these 80s acts go right, on there right. basically play these private concerts but when Rome was going and the guy who wrote the song was in the crowd and we got to play it for him Cool. And he was like genuinely moved by it. Like, he came to up tears. to us and yeah. was like hugging us on stage. And I was like, this is really cool. That's awesome. His very words, this is going to help with my career as well. And <laughs> I got to tell you, man, that's a really big compliment because I'm going I'm to put it out there to everybody. I was scared to death <laughs> to do a line dance version of this new wave 80s song. And when I'm looking at all these people like, like with 80s gear on line dancing out there. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but man, it worked. And he comes up there, he's like, brilliant, man. And I'm like, I got a metal version. Don't want it. That was country. That's I'm like, so crazy, man. Just let it happen. What are you going to do? You know? I looked at Phil. He's like, just shut up and play the song. Take, take, <laughs> take it all the way. So with the, so with the dent that the pandemic had caused, uh, following the first album, how much time was dedicated to performing on the first album? Like, uh, not on it, but performing that, touring on that. In the beginning, it was so limited, but I will say that we did special performances. Like, didn't we play the arcade theater out we, in um, we, Faraday? We tried to do the most, uh, the, like, one of the first COVID-safe concerts out in Faraday, yeah. Louisiana. And after that, I believe, uh, the they got really strict with the rules. But we were safe and we were able to at least do some. But I think we stretched out the tour for that over... It was well, probably around two years or so. It was such a big collection of songs. We were able to hit so many. Like we went to, uh, we went to Switzerland, Switzerland and Germany. 
for some reason, they just are in love with the cowboy aesthetic of America. Like, when they think America, they think the West, and they think cowboys. John Wayne. Really? So, you know, over here in, you know, the Honky Tonks where they want Southern Rock, we're playing them this rock inversion, but over here we're able to play them these more things that they're attuned to. Like they love Johnny Cash, they love all the old recordings, and half the album's a throwback. Yeah. So we were able to go over there and say, okay, well now we've got pretty much two different markets that we can hit. You know, sure. Oh, what do you like? Do you like rock and stuff? We'll hit that. Do you like the softer, more traditional stuff? We can hit that too. So it really opened up a lot more doors than just being singular. That's one of the cool. big doors is um, one of the artists we work with. Um, during the pandemic, we met a country superstar in Switzerland named Florian Fox, mm -hmm. who um, is a very authentic country guy. And we um, it actually led to one of the singles off of Ready to Ride called Wasted Again. And um, we dropped that what, New Year's. We dropped that New Year's night, and uh, man, it's been our best single. It's actually going back to what I was saying about my fear and about how I'm worried that the follow-up from both sides of the tracks may not live up. Well, so far on this album, we have um, "Wasted Again" on Spotify has been our biggest number. And once again, I'm the one saying it's never going to work. Feels like release it. What's the single on Spotify is from the upcoming album. Yes, it's okay. an early single that we released because. It, we're looking into our music video content and we're proud to say that me and Phil now film our own videos. And um, Phil, that was your first attempt at... Well, um, yeah, so essentially what we did was we said, okay, so we have all these songs, basically what we're going to do is, we have all these strong songs, let's release them as singles, and then once we release them and they're done, let's throw them on a record and then when we're going out live, we can sell it this, let's you know, yeah. remember to, hey, you can only really get it from us, here's our entire collection of songs. Otherwise, it's on, you know, basically social media things to say, come see us play live. Like, sure. Come on out. Yeah. So we basically put out this one single where it's featuring Florian. So it's this, you know, American slash Swiss crossover, you know, Euro-American thing where it's like, hey, it's on New Year's. It's wasted again. There's no better time to drink. And so, I, I had this really cool idea that, you know, New Year's night we can release it promotionally. We can release it here in America, but also we can release it in Switzerland mm -hmm. to where we base, which was very interesting on the time difference. But uh, we basically released the song, man, and the numbers shot up to uh, 49, 50,000 really what's, quick. And What's really funny is we're almost uh, nervous to go back because last year we went to Switzerland. We got a warm <laughs> reception, but none, it was our first impression to a lot of these people. None of these people really heard of us. We were touring with our partner who, you know, he's already dominated that little market over there. Sure. So we're talking with our partner, and these people are so nice and welcome. And now he's calling us and telling us that he's oh. like, "Oh, I played it for my birthday party to like eighteen hundred people, and everybody was singing along." So now we're almost like, "We're going back this year." And they're yeah. like, "What is it going to be like this time? Is it going to be, you know, a completely different experience if people are going, oh, hey, you're the people from that song.' You sure, know? yeah, it's going to be like a world. I could call us the Soggy that. Bottom Boys, no, I'm just yeah, you know, honestly, though, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get the impression that you're in this to pander to the court of public opinion. I think it's not really. No. It's been self-expression from jump. So in the end, no matter what you come out with, and no matter what the reception is, you're going to be satisfied. Honestly, you know, I mean, if you look in the mirror, satisfied. You know, you can have a number one hit on the radio and not be happy with it. You, you know, know what I'm saying? That's yeah. very true, man. And you know, I've learned through the process of getting over that fear of 
Look, man, this this record and these collection of songs is just where I'm at in my life. And the, at the very least, I can say it's honest. Next record may be entirely different. It might be an entirely different place. But like you said, looking in the mirror, I can honestly say it's an honest, you know, expression of who I am. And the success we're having from it is great, but that's not why I write it in the first place. Sure, sure. I write it to get it out there and maybe it helps people who are in similar situations, you know. Tell us about Thailand. I thought that was pretty cool. And I'm glad that, um, I didn't realize y'all had a week. I thought I was catching y'all as soon as you came back. So I mean, I'm glad y'all had some time. Hey, you're catching us awake, man. That's about the best thing. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the very best part about it, you know. So um, how did it come about? Was this the same guy from Florida that ended yes. up being your booking agent? How long yeah. have you been with the guy? Man, we've been, it's a fairly new um, management thing here. Oh. We've been with him probably about six months to a year now, huh, Phil? Uh, probably about, I'd say closer to six months. We met him and we were kind of on this like, you know, oh, let's see how this works. Because like, sure. if you're going with management, you know, that's a big part of your business. You don't want to just jump on somebody. It's almost like a, it's almost like a boyfriend, girlfriend, really. you're feeling people out. You're seeing, yeah. you know, yeah. what kind of rapport you have, how, what personality, how you work with this person. And we did a gig for them up in uh, Ohio, basically fundraising for some veterans up there at the VFW and no I'm sorry it was the uh what was American Legion Hall oh the American Legion Hall in Williamsburg Ohio yeah yeah and it was like wow this is smooth I really like the way you run things yeah. let's work together and then I believe y'all went on a country cruise and yeah. he had been going back and forth to Thailand for like off and on for 22 years you know it was like one of his favorite spots he's like I gotta show y'all around this wild crazy place and he wasn't lying. No, he was not. So he was basically like, I got connections, let's go. Come on, you know, I'll get you in some of these venues. It's like, we'll go see what the music scene is like so we can bring the band a little later. And uh, God, what an education. That, this is going to be a whole segment of this podcast, man. Like, the way it starts, like Phil said, you know, like we went on this country superstar cruise. Mm hmm. And, um, man, we were on there with, like, Randy Owen from Alabama, who we opened for, but also we were there with, like, Neil McCoy and people like Mo Bandy and all these great classic country artists. And all of a sudden, my manager's like, <laughs> I'm on this cruise, man. He comes up to me. He's like, Will, I signed you up for the country superstar competition on this cruise. And I'm like, great. Thanks for the preparation. Yeah. Um, and I placed, like, second or third in it. And, and um, from there... He calls me up and he's like, I don't know about the whole band, Will, but what do you think about a duo tour with you and Phil coming to Bangkok, Thailand? And I'm like, are they going to want to hear country or rock in Bangkok, Thailand? Like, Absolutely. That was going to be my next question. Man, you would never reception? think it, man. I wouldn't know what to expect. Man, it was out of sight, man. Like, we, we, we fly for 27 hours. And um, we get off the plane and we go through all the customs and all this stuff. We're, we're here and we start performing. And the reaction from these people was staggering. Like we, we ended our first song and I was once again nervous. Like, I don't know how we're gonna go over. I don't even know if they know what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> and we would end a song and it was just waves of applause. Like they're just, they're losing their minds. Man. Such beautiful people. Wonderful people, man. Like, um, just generous and kind. And, um, from there, you know, <laughs> one of the places that sticks out to me is this place called the Golden Giraffe. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful, like live music venue there. And man, they, <laughs> we went there thinking, Hey, we're, we're American artists. We, we, we play blues and all this stuff. It's a lot of blues played in that club. 
And some of the blues players and some of the musicians in general oh, in this tight, club. Dude, they were so tight. Man, they <laughs> they'll put a lot of artists to shame, man. Like they they really they they were on top of their game, man. And these were locals. Yeah. Gotcha. And me and Phil, like the first night we were like, we got this. The second night we were sitting there, I'm like, and he's like, let him bring it. Just had this touch. It was amazing. Like it was, it was one of those things where you're watching all these bands cycle in and out, and there's a lot of talent, but all of a sudden in every band you're like, that dude, that dude right there is the guy who shined. This, and it was hard to pick sometimes. Like they would have a monstrous drummer playing next to this sax player who's ripping it because apparently they have. We didn't notice they have a jazz scene, a huge jazz scene. I was going to mention jazz, that in dude. Asia. It's not it's Thailand, huge. but I'm a fan of like this, this 70s era yeah. jazz that comes from there. And you can go find some of those albums, which I wouldn't be able to recount or pronounce, but phenomenal, well, phenomenal, well, just amazing. So like Thailand has a king, right? And the current king is like a younger guy, but his dad who had passed away was a huge fan of jazz. Oh, yeah. We were in one of the beach cities and they had like these uh, pictures of him on the street uh, the street lights and it said King of Jazz and he's basically rocking the sax up there like Bill Clinton. Nice. And yeah, you man. go in a cafe and they have they have jazz playing. It's not top 40, it's jazz. It's like, like bebop and like like the, the authentic jazz. Not as much smooth jazz as it is, you know, like Miles Davis. And sure. So it's a lot Herbie of Hancock, you know. It's a lot of New Orleans where you have all these like jazz cats walking in and being like, oh, I'm a jazz dude, but I'm gonna play blues tonight. Sure. I'm even gonna name drop, man. <laughs> we were there and my, our manager tells me, he goes, Will, um, lined up a band to back you and Phil, you know, the Golden Giraffe. Because ironically, we went there sitting in, hanging out, and we ended up getting like two headlining shows from it. Like, cause the crowd was just so, we had had our other book tours, but this particular club was the highlight of their live music. And we got two headlining nights there. Mm -hmm. Well, I was like, man, you can't just throw a drummer on us and just, you know, uh, and my manager was like, yeah, I can. <laughs> man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop the name. His name was Huran. Yeah, Ryan, yeah. And he was one of the Ryan. best drummers. We, Seth Jones is our personal drummer, and he's one of the best I've ever heard. But this guy came in cold and just, man, one of the best drummers other than Seth that I think we've played with. Would you uh, agree to yeah, that? This is one of those people where you what, what is this? Your only strong is your weakest link. If your weakest link is your drummer, like you're done. You're like, done. There's nothing you can do. That's the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it was like, it's one of those things where like you hear somebody like, oh, can I can I sit in or I'm playing with you guys and they play like, two seconds or something. You're like, okay, this is either gonna be a really good night or you know, <laughs> or you have the reaction like, uh oh, like we have a lot of things to do. Yeah. Thankfully, like some of the talent over there, they had all kinds of people flying. What was really cool about it was it was this giant international mixing pot. So I mean, like you had all kinds of people. I mean, we had tons of expats. Like there was a lot of British people, yeah. Australian people there. There was also a really big German tourist population. Yeah. And then there were like Asian tourists as well. So I mean, you have Japanese people and Chinese people coming in. So we literally, they would have a, uh, their band gigs sometimes were almost like jams. So they'd have a band play and they're like, oh, we got some friends here tonight. They're a band from the Philippines. Get on up here. And the entire band changes out. And all of a sudden, this wow. band from the Philippines is rocking a couple of songs. And killing and they it. They are all, oh, dude. Killing it, man. They had this little killing. bass player, and he was jumping up and down and playing crazy jazz fills on this funk tune. Nice. I, oh, it was beautiful to watch. Man, so, the, the first time I knew that we were doing okay there, I walked in the first night, 
<laughs> and we had already finished our gig and we just kind of went to this late night jam session. <clears throat> and our, our manager was like, hey, get up and jam with this group. And the guitar player for the band like, looked at me and was like, I was like, eh. well, the second night when I got done after the first night, I came in the second night and he's like, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think I did, I think I did good, good here, you know. You made a name for yourself without yeah. saying a word. That's cool. Yeah, man. We, Are there plans to go back over there? Yeah, oh, September. Yeah. Full band? September. Yeah. When is this uh, second release? I forgot the name, I'm sorry. We are currently ready to ride. We're ready to ride. It's like the first single drops, you know, like I said, we're basically cutting singles off of it. Sure. We'll group it all together as an album to right. be sold. But the first single dropped in January, and we're currently making plans to drop the next one sometime in the early summer. A lot of this stuff is very hard rocking, mm -hmm. and uh, quite frankly, we want to do it when the sun is shining. The winter yeah. has been really weird here lately. Sure. We yeah. also wanted to shoot a lot of videos while we were over in Thailand. That was one of the things yeah. we really wanted to take an opportunity for, is we've been working really hard on studying cinematography to make sure that if we're shooting videos ourselves, they come out professional. Sure. So. We were like, we're going to a place where, you know, a few of our friends are going, a few artists around here have the opportunity to go, let's really make the most of it. I mean, it's it's pretty much New York City over there in the, in the city aesthetic. Right. And then we got to go to a little beach town, too. So we had a lot of different environments to shoot. Ooh, and yeah. So there's a lot of production planning, basically. Okay, now we're back from Thailand. We got a lot of editing to do. Perfect. And we've got a lot of finalizing to do. So we're estimating the early summer release but we're also trying to balance it out with like i said we're two songwriters so like you know we're working on all his stuff we're working on i have solo stuff coming out as well we're basically yeah. two songwriters who were practically best friends after the uh the stuff that we've been through sure you know and a couple of the things that i'm really excited about with this album phil touched upon some of that is that we're kind of taking the fans along the journey almost like a documentary so yeah the upcoming singles were filmed parts here but mostly in like los angeles california we filmed in thailand you know even wasted again was filmed partly here in america and partly in switzerland so we're kind of like letting the fans travel with us through our videos and our yeah, social awesome. media content you know kind of see the see the world through our eyes kind of thing you know sure so and i'm very excited about that and the other thing i'm excited about with this album is um there's there's gonna be a lot of personal material you know one of the singles that's dropping is a tune called 12 o'clock in texas that was co-written uh, me and phil wrote together while we were on tour in texas and it's telling the kind of the story about my brother and how he was you know you know here but no longer here and that's going to be one of the i personally think going to be one of the strongest singles off of this this collection work a little darker but maybe a little bit more relatable too sure you know? um tell everybody where they can find all of your media because you're pumping out you're pumping out some videos as well as the albums let everybody know yeah. where they can find everything well, first, you can check me out personally and keep up with us at my website, willwestonmusic.com and at willwestonmusic. But you can also find my singles on Spotify, Apple, really any of your favorite online digital sources. We're everywhere. We're worldwide these days, man. YouTube. Everything's at willwestonmusic. Okay. And at Bill Chandler Music. We're 
two people in two different bands. It, I mean, we have a big tour band, this nasty tour band. We take all around the state. And, and we play in each other's band. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's like some days we'll go out and be like, hey, we're going to shoot the Will Wesley music video. Yeah. And I'll be a guitar player. Sometimes we'll shoot the Bill Chandler video. And Will's right there still rocking in a rock and roll cowboy hat. I, I think what's funny is I guess you can call us both um, always playing the boss. In my band, he's the music director. So if anyone's like, Will, I don't know, talk to Phil. And his band, I'm the music director. So I'm like, Phil, I don't agree. Talk to Will. <laughs> nice. But yeah, we kind of got this different vision of like Phil in his original music, he fronts the band, but it's the same band. Yeah. And vice versa with my band. Every, every, a lot of people that we find in this business, you know, a lot of people are very nice, but some people in their performance and in their little thing where they are king, they want the spotlight. And they, they, sometimes people are a little weird about that. Yeah. We don't care. <laughs> so yeah. we, we realize that there's a time to be in the spotlight, and there's almost a, some kind of relief of stepping out of that spotlight. Yeah, like to leave off, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it beckons back to what I was talking about, if you were smart enough to delegate some duties, because yeah. a lot of people are trying to spearhead their project from start to finish themselves, and they'll just take the whole thing down with them, because it, it, it's, it, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's going to swallow you alive. It, it will, You can man. only do so much. Yeah, I mean, all power to them for trying, man. But uh, in my personal experience, I need the help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand 100%, believe me, from where I'm sitting. All right, man, well, I appreciate your time. It was great meeting Hey, man, thanks for having Both us, us, man. Thanks Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together, we push our souls out to the speakers. We look around the stage and read off of one another. And, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person is going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans, and that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening. 